0: Hi, this is Russell Hearn from EMDR UK with a special edition of Past, Present and Future. Today, I have the pleasure in speaking to a member of the EMDR community about her recent article in the ETQ, that's the EMDR therapy quarterly publication from the association in the UK. Olatunde Spence is an art therapist, a campaigner and an activist. And in this edition, we think about whether EMDR is an anti-racist therapy and how we can really be culturally informed when working with our clients. So Ola Tundi, thanks so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure. How important is it then for us to consider culture in an EMDR therapy setting?
1: Well, I think it's very important. And I guess one of the things for me is that when we think about culture, we're often thinking in a way that's othering. So everybody has a culture. So, for me, if I'm working with somebody who's working class, who's grown up in a particular context, I'd be thinking, well, what's their cultural experience? So, often I think culture gets turned into this idea of race and culture, which is then a kind of othering. So, sometimes we sort of consider culture being, you know, belonging to other people who are different from us or certainly different skin color to us, I would say. So, I think mm-hmm. everybody has a culture.
0: And I'm, I know you are autistic and so that we've got kind of an intersectionality here of different layers of elements of your story mm-hmm. and so I, I guess you see a therapeutic situation very differently to how I might what do you think and, you know, as a white male middle class middle age probably completely unaware of my whole privilege I suppose and what would I need to think about to maybe respond differently or work differently with, with people who do have a very different culture to mine?
1: Okay. I think I can mainly speak from personal experience because that's where, you know, my knowledge and experience comes from as well as reading and, you know, research and stuff. But, you know, in my personal experience of actually seeking therapy, you know, what's been important to me as a black woman who's autistic um, is that if I'm meeting with a white therapist, and they don't actually mention these issues at all, I'm thinking, well, have you not noticed that I'm different to you or this might be an issue? So I've always been impressed by people saying, you know, I'm not black. I don't know what it means to be black, but I do have this experience or I have this understanding or I've got a limited understanding. I can then respond by saying something like, well, I'm glad you've said that but also I'm not here to teach you about racism or anti-racism, so that, that we've got a dialogue to begin with. So I can usually gauge from that initial conversation whether or not somebody's being very defensive or they're being very open or they're being very honest. And to me, that's what matters, I think, when you're a therapist. Can you be open and honest about where we're at?
0: Excellent. And I was I was guessing, you know, as a therapist, our aim is to be curious and curious of the person's story and enable them to tell that story within our setting and, and more so with the MDR, maybe than anything else. But to ask those questions, to start to talk about difference, seems really hard. Why is that?
1: Well, I think there's a kind of long standing history of people finding it very uncomfortable talking about things that have to do with racism. You know, we've been brought up in cultures where we don't talk about that openly or if we do, we're scared of saying the wrong thing. And that's not just for white therapists. You know, that's my experience sometimes with black therapists as well. It depends what education you've had, how comfortable you are what kind of family you've grown up in it says what's a very political family so I think for me that curiosity I think one thing I learned when I was doing my counseling training is like who's the question for so if the question is for the therapist then maybe you really need to think about what you're actually asking the question for or is it for the client's benefit so that's always been for me a kind of really good rule of like if I'm asking a question is it for my benefit or for their benefit
0: can you give an example? Because I'm really trying to understand that. That sounds so important.
1: Yeah. So if it's like, so if I'm trying to imagine being a well, a therapist who doesn't have a lot of understanding around oppressive or oppression or oppression and how it affects a particular person. Um, so say, for instance, you know, my knowledge around, you know, trans experiences might be limited. I mean, it's not, but it might be limited. So if I'm asking a question because I don't really know much about their experience or what they're experiencing... Am I asking a question about their story to clarify something in my mind that I'm curious about? Or is it a question that's going to be helpful for them in mm. terms of being able to share a bit more about their their experience? So if I'm wondering, you know, or how long is it since um, you realised that you were, you know, of a different gender than that you were born with? Is that a helpful question for the client? Because I already know that. So that's a question about my curiosity. And that's not necessarily a helpful question. Not sure it's the best example, but I think just asking yourself, who's the question for? And is it a benefit to the person or does that put that person in a difficult position where they're now having to explain something or teach me about something that I could actually go and read a book about, go on a course about? So one of the things I struggled with when I was doing my training was that I felt I was educating quite a lot of the lecturers. And my thought was, going back to the thing you said about privilege, you're a white privileged lecturer with a lot of money. Why aren't you paying for a course on this? Why aren't you reading books on this? Because I'm sure you could find just as much information from a wide variety of sources, because I'm only one person and my experience is only my experience. If you read a book about anti-racist practice, you're going to get that from a lot of different sources, different perspectives, and therefore it's your responsibility to actually educate yourself on these issues. There's loads of stuff out there
0: that may be the the difficulty then a therapist might be interested identify that there is a difference in culture and want to explore and i think we all just want our clients to tell us what we need to do to help them but if we've if we do that wrong if we phrase that wrong if the questions are wrong that can be seen maybe as uh invasive or insulting Do you think
1: inappropriate maybe so if somebody asks me about my experience of racism my first response would be why do you want to know that do you want to know that in terms of how I experience it and therefore where there there might be a target we're looking for if we're thinking just about EMDR practice it might be you're actually asking a question that's about an experience that I've had that might be important in terms of that history taking and how I experienced it at the time what my responses were at the time how I felt at the time and then what happened as as a result of that experience? That's a legitimate question. If you're trying to quantify whether or not it was a racist experience, that's a different question. So I've had experiences where somebody said, well, well, it might have been that that you just look very different. So one of the things I, I might get is that, you know, I walked into a pub and the whole pub turned around and looked at me. I felt very uncomfortable as a black person thinking, well, you know, is this a, is this a, is this a dangerous situation for me? And I've had somebody say things, well, oh, it might be because you're just very attractive. <laughs> it might be, but actually you no, don't actually listen to what I'm saying. Right. Okay. So there's that sort of thing where people start to reinterpret my experiences. Well, it could be something else. Well, it could be, but that's not what I've come to you for, for you to reinterpret my experience. Do
0: you think there, there's a tendency to do that if there's a difference in, in culture um, that somebody might kind of revert to their understanding of the situation rather than listening to what you're saying your experience was?
1: yeah and I I would say well what what causes that so if you know as a therapist we're there to listen and we know we're trained in this we listen we're listening out for things that we might be thinking about in terms of EMDR as targets or things to go back and explore or to somebody to expand on then that listening has got to be from that that kind of neutral position now we know that's not always possible so what I mean by that is that you know if I'm feeling defensive about racism and I may have turned around in a pub and stared at a black person walking in I'm now operating from that place for my discomfort or from my um, people call it unconscious bias, but I, I struggle with unconscious. I think some of it's quite conscious, but you know, I'm, I'm okay with people saying, "Well, there is perhaps an unconscious bias." It's very conscious because all of you know the stuff that we receive through the media, through the TV. You know, we're, we're taking that in on a daily basis. So you know already that we live in a society that is actually racist, and we're also being the stuff is being poured into us. So that's where we think we need to check our biases. So, for me, that means reading things around white privilege, reading black literature, reading black stories. So, again, when we're thinking about culture and curiosity, you know, I don't know much about older women who were from, you know, India before partition. So what I've done in, you know, in my lifetime is to read stories of people migrating. There might be, you know, fiction and things like that, because that again gives me a better understanding of somebody's circumstances. You know, if somebody's in their 60s and came over here when they're in their 20s before partition, that's a very different experience from people migrating now who might be a university student. So it's on me to understand about different people's experience and different people's cultures and, you know, the language that people might use. So, yeah, I think that to me, I take that responsibility very seriously around all kinds of issues around groups who are marginalised or minoritized. That's my responsibility as a therapist.
0: And the theme there seems to be what you're saying, that we're not relying on that person to explain all their experiences. It's about us understanding and searching to find knowledge and understanding of, um, the different experiences those groups will have. And I'm, I guess I'm also thinking of the double empathy approach for neurodiversity. You know, there's a, a non a neurotypical person might see a neurodiverse person as not fitting into society, whereas they're not trying to help that situation. There's this kind of two-way dance that has to go on and that they have a responsibility to do their bit in that process.
1: Yeah, and I guess I think again, because I'm <laughs> very pedantic about words, oh. but we're all neurodiverse. And yes. that's got, you know, like biodiversity, everything, you know, everything uh, in that mix is diverse. And if we're talking about neurodivergent, so it's a divergence from what is considered to be, you know, a, a kind of predominant sort of way of thinking and doing things. So I'd be thinking about in terms of like, how does their neurodivergence, impact our communication I might misunderstand something so as an autistic person I would often say I'm you know in a situation where it's a new situation I'm very literal so if you say things where you use lots of metaphor I might suddenly get very confused when we've been having a very literal conversation and you kind of throw something in like well you can't have your cake and eat it and then I thinking, well what have you said that for why aren't you having cake but the given time where I get to know somebody and I've got, you know, I think about I've got a Rolodex of uh, in my brain of, of metaphorical phrases. I think, oh, that's that phrase. That's what that means in this context. But sometimes it can be out of context. So I guess I think in, when we're talking about neurodivergence and the double empathy um, sort of issues is really working out how do you best communicate? How do you best understand um, when I'm speaking? You know, is that different when you stress? Is that different from when you're coming in quite upset? because I know throughout the day when I think about autism it's a very dynamic disability you know it will change throughout the day in the morning I'm not very coherent by the afternoon I'm on it I'm on top of it by the evening time I'll be affected by the amount of noise and light Mm. and all those things so I guess in terms of the therapeutic space you know time of the day might be very important um for me there are access issues if it takes me 10 minutes just to kind of just do a brain dump of stuff that's just happened on the way there and I've only got 50 minutes well that's always not necessarily suitable for lots of people who are neurodivergent so in my practice I always allow that time to overrun because thinking well you just needed 10 minutes just to settle down and then I'm going to say oh well 40 minutes that um, it's over so these are things that are important to me in terms of my work as a therapist and all those kind of intersectional kind of issues as well that they uh, part of my practice, a part of my thinking before I even meet somebody.
0: So I'm kind of hearing that, you know, whether we're talking about neurodivergence or diversity in terms of our culture or any um, protected characteristic, there's really a responsibility on the therapist to try and educate themselves, not relying on their client to do that.
1: Absolutely. And I would say not to try because that almost feels like it's an effort, but the responsibility is to educate yourself. Right.
0: Okay. Um, so if we think more about EMDR, mm-hmm. is there anything, <laughs> I'm kind of asking you the question we both said I shouldn't ask maybe, but is there anything that we should be trying to learn more about that will influence it the way that we do EMDR? Is there a direction that we should be researching or finding out?
1: Um, I, I mean, I guess that comes down to the kind of clients that we have, don't we? So, you know, one of the things I'm going to be thinking about is, is adaptations in practice. So you know, and and that this is about actually working with autistic clients. But I think, well, we adapt every time we meet a new client because <laughs> they've got a different name, they come at a different time, they've got some different issues that they're coming with. So I guess in terms of what we should, I mean, should is one of those words again because I'm so pedantic. Should often implies some kind of judgment, or oh, we're doing something you know that we 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 ought not to be doing, or that you know doesn't kind of meet with our own our values and our needs. So I would think about what we could be doing. Yeah. So, you know, in that could we could be thinking about, you know, have we got groups already like our special interest groups that where we can have these discussions? Have we, you know, are we sort of looking at literature from other places? Like, you know, I know America's got a lot of stuff around these issues around working with different identities and certainly minoritized identities. Um, so there are other places in the world where we could be le- learning those lessons from. But I actually think about also a British context because it is different. It is different being in Britain, growing up in Britain, um, either as a black person, as an autistic person. So I think it's about where the opportunity is to actually learn and increase our learning. So, for example, if I meet with a client and I'm suddenly faced with a situation that happened this week, actually, where the language that I use was just totally inappropriate for this person. But okay, now I've heard that. So what I now need to go and do is is go and do some bit of research around that. I'll certainly have some thinking about what might be going on for this person. I suspect there's some internalised oppression going on there as well. But I also want to be respectful and think, okay, this person said this to me, so I need to be very mindful about what I say next time and how I introduce these issues and discussing these issues. Um, But it's on me to actually go back and really think and reflect or take it to supervision. So I think in terms of the cut, you know, I think it's really important that we actually use the the resources that we have. So, you know, we don't always have time to read. But you know, if there's a a, a kind of film on that's actually maybe about these issues, you know, I think I saw something like, well, way before a lot of stuff's actually happening in Afghanistan, is it the kind of something we can't find? I can't remember what it was, but actually choosing films it wouldn't necessarily kind of go for because they're actually about subjects and places around the world that I don't know much about. So actually consciously looking for films. Um, you know I saw a really interesting one recently about a Tunisian therapist who's returning from Paris to kind of develop her practice back in Tunisia it's a very funny film but again you get lots of cultural references Mm. and some struggles that she had as somebody trained you know in a kind of very European Eurocentric perspective and then going back home and trying to find a way to work with you know Tunisian older men so you know it's that sort of stuff to me that I think is you know it's it's there that we can all tap into you know whether it's films that are in different languages where we can get subtitles. So I think we've got so much access to so much media stuff and whatever suits you in terms of your learning, you know, you can find those things, I think, to find out a bit more about people's experiences.
0: Well, that's good to hear because I'd much rather watch a film than read a book, I have to say. Uh, but I was interested because you said that, you know, your client are fed back to you about the language you use. And I, I was just assuming that you always got it right. But that's quite nice to know that maybe you don't. And I, I think what we're, we're addressing here is this, this feeling of being uncomfortable and having uncomfortable conversations and learning through that. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, and I guess that that sort of brings up a question for me about that whole thing around defensiveness. So, I, you know, I noticed that, okay, I've got this seriously wrong and I apologise for that. And then I thought, well, okay, how do other people deal with that level of defensiveness? And this, I'll just give an example that somebody said to me a long time ago, and again, because I'm autistic, I didn't understand it. I was working on a kind of parents as partners program where we're actually looking at sort of parental relationships and their actual intimate relationship. So it's a, quite a long program, about 16 weeks. And at the end of it, this person said to me, I really like working with you because you don't have any ego. I was like, what does that mean? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I didn't get it. So I thought, well, it sounded like a compliment. And then I had this conversation more recently with a, f- a friend of mine who's also an autistic counsellor. and She was, she sort of broke it down She said that people who are autistic don't tend to have ego because it's something that happens when you're quite young that you never feel that you kind of, you know, you've got sort to of put yourself forward or you're in competition with other people. And I didn't fully understand what she meant, but it put into context the conversation about you don't have any ego. I don't feel like I'm competing with anybody else. I certainly know when something impacts me that, okay, that's something that I need to lean into because that's part of our training. Um, and I'm very open to being challenged and change. That's something I believed. All therapists do, because that's what we're trained to do. But I found out through many, many examples that that's not what most therapists do, or certainly therapists who feel very privileged and feel like they're being got at in some way. So that ego stuff gets in the way, I think, of like, well, I've got it wrong. What does that say about me? Then you end up being, you know, in, in your stuff rather than what the actual issue is about. I think I'm open to learning and that may be to do with being autistic or not, because I'm not always going to get it right. And every situation for me is a new situation. So this new challenge is a new challenge. I've not experienced this before. So I need to think about that, reflect on that. Certainly in the first instance, apologize and recognize that I've made that mistake and then, you know, build that relationship again. So, you know, when we are thinking things about like ruptures and things like that. You know, we're the ones who are trained, we're the ones in the positions of power, no matter what our intersectional identities are. We're always in a position of power as a therapist to own our stuff and and repair stuff.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting to hear you say that. I think it's quite common within the therapeutic community to... To feel that, you know, I've got to be careful, I might do something wrong. And then if people are identifying things that you're doing wrong, that can feel very uncomfortable. Just I can remember when we first started to use routine outcome measures and the kind of (sighs) the horror that went with that, because this will identify that I haven't been a good therapist. And there was so much angst and, and concern around that. Um, but that is how we grow and that is how we empower our clients through enabling them to be part of that conversation, working together, being collaborative. That's We've got to kind of be able to manage some of the comments that say, actually, you know what, I prefer if you did this rather than assuming we always get it right.
1: Yeah, and, and probably also thinking back to um, my very early experience of kind of critical sort of study. So I didn't go to university till much later in life, but as a very young person, I was part of... Um, a kind of all African people sort of revolutionary party and part of our work was to do work study and, and look at text and things. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I learned a lot from it. And so from that experience... Um, it was also about kind of recognizing when we're reacting or when we're responding. So things like you know very political terms like you're in reaction or things like that, but really understanding what that actually meant. So I think again that was a part of my journey in terms of being able to be critical and being challenged and and, and to challenge. So you know one of the things that I, that really sort of stuck with me. and I think it's Samara Michelle, but I'm not exactly sure. It might be Patrice Lumumba, but that the idea that out of conflict. Uh, and struggle comes change. Mm-hmm. So I'm willing to engage in conflict and struggle because actually it leads to change. So we think about that on a wider context, as well as on a kind of smaller context with our clients, you know, if we get it wrong, that's usually, you know, re- something really wonderful can happen when we get it wrong. Cause one, we have to think about where we're coming from, why that's wrong. It gives the client some kind of power to challenge us and, and, and for us to learn from that experience, but share that learning experience as well. Um, and it's something that's very typical about therapy. You know, we're looking at somebody's work and we might think, OK, that looks a bit like a hedgehog or a hairbrush. Well, you're going to get it wrong because it's not your image. And the very fact that the then the client then explains, actually, no, it wasn't a, a, um, a hedgehog. It was actually the hairbrush that my mum used to hit me with when she was brushing my hair. Right. Now we've got a new understanding. So I think actually getting it wrong should be part of what we do or could very much really inform what it is that we do in terms of improving our relationships, our communication. And actually we're doing that as a kind of uh, a, a shared learning experience rather than I'm the therapist, I'm always right. <laughs> and when I'm actually told that I'm wrong, I'm now uncomfortable because actually I've been spent so many years training to get it right and think of getting it right. So I think it's a, there is something about that. I think you, you mentioned cultural humans. I think it's just about that's the humility of being a human being, actually. Mm. And that, what that brings to mind for me is that phrase Ubuntu, which is we are people through people.
0: And I was thinking in the EMDR community, you know, maybe we should emphasize this for the supervisory role, enabling, again, this, this safe place to reflect on those times when we're getting things wrong.
1: Yeah, and I think in terms of supervision, I mean, I don't know how many supervisors we've got who are comfortable to have these conversations and knowledgeable about these conversations. So I certainly had a conversation in the process of writing the article uh, around is EMDR anti-racist therapy? That, you know, somebody was able to be very honest with me about they took this to their supervisor, an issue that came up for them, the supervisor responded in a way that was really unhelpful. So again, we can't always trust that supervision is the place where people got that knowledge, expertise, competence you know long history of being you know working within sort of anti-racist or um, addressing issues around homophobia or ableism so we, you know we really need to have those competent supervisors who are across all those oppressive practices that, that everybody is experiencing on a day-to-day basis not just the people from those oppressed groups as a person who you know maybe it isn't disabled you're seeing ableism all the time are you benefiting from not being disabled so that we're all in this that we're all experiencing it on the day-to-day basis there are different degrees of that experience and different ways in which it impacts our daily lives and our sense of who we are. So
0: we can all read um, your piece in the ETQ which uh, I heartily recommend that everybody does would there be a take-home message that we could just share now that, that you would want to give to all our EMDR community?
1: Um, I think take-home message would be, you know, can you identify your own gaps in your own knowledge? Because it's your stuff. You know, I know that, you know, there's some issues that I'm not very sure about or feel less confident about. So, you know, identifying your own gaps in your own learning. Maybe recognising when you have got it wrong, Um, what your response and reactions have been. Have you reacted or have you responded? Um, you know, there's going to be so many things we don't know about. We can't know everything. But, you know, what are there some fundamental gaps in your learning? I think the Black Lives Matter movement has thrown up lots of questions for therapists that before that... And lots of people said, we could have ignored it before then, or we can't now. But this has been going on for black people for over 400 years. We're well ahead of the game on this one. Um, so if it's only since, you know, two years ago that people have been woken up to the kind of racist society that we live in, then you need to be catching up pretty quickly. Because as black people, we've been experiencing this, you know, for a very long time. So that can't be something that can, that can wait. So I think identifying gaps in your own knowledge, thinking about your reactions to when you get it wrong, Really exploring what it feels like to do that and come to when you're talking about things right about racism and, you know, doing some work around that, finding some space to do that. One of the things that what I might propose is that there the, the ought to be a group of white therapists actually getting together in one of these six to look about anti-racist practices, as white therapists. Because that's a conversation that you can have amongst yourselves without feeling that need to kind of be censored or worry too much about the things that, you know, you might be feeling quite ignorant about because I think there actually needs to be a space for white therapists to have those conversations, to actually educate each other, because there are anti-racist white therapists out there who can do a really good job of that, and not rely on the labour of black people to actually challenge you about your racism.
0: And I think that point is so important, that you know maybe white therapists have only woken up since the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, and that we now have to realise that... Anti racism is the way we need to be going, not just sort of standing still, assuming everything is fine, that actually to make effort and progress towards that anti racist society.
1: And, you know, we also have our own British experience of Stephen Lawrence. Most of us are old enough to remember that. Yeah. So we shouldn't have had to wait for George Floyd no. murdered. It's just it was a live stream. That's the only difference.
0: Yeah. And uh, at a very critical time when the world was in shock as well, I think.
1: Mm-hmm
0: with covid yeah Tundi, thank you so much for allowing me to spend this time with you and to consider your article in a in a bit more detail i found it fascinating and i would recommend obviously that everyone goes to the etq and uh, checks out that november edition article about whether emdr is an anti-racist therapy We'll be continuing this theme in our next podcast when we talk to Femke Banning-Mambaze about her cultural adaptations to EMDR therapy. That's something she'll be presenting on at the York 2024 conference. So I hope you can join us for that. Thank you for your time and we look forward to hearing more from you.
1: Thank you very much, Russ.
0: Past, present and future is a Laura Beach
1: production for EMDR UK.